0: Here we are on the first Sunday of Lent. Oh, my. It just seems, I, I, don't, know, for, I don't know, for me, it's January and then it's June. I mean, where does, where does the year go? You know, it's Monday and then it's Thursday. It's just Everything just seems to be evaporating lately. But here we are. Now, Easter is early this year. So Easter is March 31st, that makes Good Friday March 29th, and remember we have our Good Friday service Friday the 29th uh, in the evening, and that's one of my favorite gatherings of the year. It's just a darker, it's moodier, it's just so much fun. We, we go into Middle Eastern mode musically and do all kinds of interesting things, and we follow the responses of Jesus' first followers through those horrible hours of the, uh, of the Passion. Um, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. So that is coming up. So we're already into Lent. So as we said earlier, Lent was last Wednesday, Ash Wednesday was last Wednesday, the first day of Lent. And uh, now we're into the first Sunday. So, Lent, how are we supposed to understand Lent? I want to talk about that this morning. See if we can get it placed in a way that we can actually use it over the next 40 days to galvanize our preparation for this new life that, that Easter is bringing. What does Lent really mean? For those of you who never experienced it, well, you're going to do some learning this morning. If you really haven't experienced it in a liturgical church, if you haven't gone through Lent, well, we'll try to teach a little about, a bit about what Lent is. If you did grow up with Lent, if you did grow up in a liturgical church, um, well, then Nina is available for therapy after the service. <laughs> Reasonable rates. Reasonable rates. But what we're going to need to do is to do some unlearning because we learned, I grew up Catholic, I know, I still love the liturgy, I love the liturgy, and I love what the Catholic Church represents. It's just we have gone in a different direction in terms of the way we follow Jesus, but, yeah, I still feel such brotherhood with them and with the liturgy especially. But I learned Lent as a child, and there's a lot of unlearning that I needed to do, and that's something that we want to talk about this morning. So... We're going to try to do both. We're going to try to do some learning and some unlearning. And depending on how much you know about Lent, you can see how much you need to balance those two sides of that coin. But we're going to try to reposition Lent. We're going to try to make it an affirmative time, a positive time, and a very useful preparation for the new life that Easter represents for us. And I want to start in a pretty, I suppose, unlikely spot. But I think it's Jesus' starting place for the way. It's where he always starts. If you come to Jesus and ask him the burning $65,000 question, I mean, if you could come before Jesus, what would you ask him? I think it would be something along the lines of, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Wouldn't that be like one of the most important things you'd want to know? How does this work? What do I do? How do I Become approved. How do I... You would want to know this from the master. And this is where Jesus always starts, in this place. Take a look at Mark 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the question. He gets in front of the master, and he wants to know that burning question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me." But at these words, the man was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Okay, we've all heard this story before. I've made a big deal about it because to me, this is one of the central passages in the Gospels, because it answers that question. And it answers it in a classic Jesus way, the way he always answers such questions. So we come to Jesus and we ask you this question, and Jesus tells us basically two things. The first thing is, follow the rules until you learn to live in community, until you have learned to respect others, until you have learned to balance your life in such a way that you've got a foundation. Follow the rules into that kind of balance, into that ability to play well in the sandbox with the other kids, right? That's what you need to do. But once you've gotten there, the second thing is to sell it all. Everything that you have accrued, everything that you have learned, everything you think you know and think you are, let go of it, unlearn, and follow me then into mystery. Follow me into the freedom of perfect love. It's a two-step process. The first is about conformance. Until we learn something, until we have become formed by the law. The second is transformance. It's going beyond obedience. It's going beyond rule following and out into this mystery, out into this abyss. Now, how did I come to that conclusion? based on what you just read here. Let's take a look at the key elements of this passage. First of all, we're dealing with a wealthy man. Now, if you look at the parallels in the other gospels, not only is he wealthy, but he's also young, and he's also a man of power. He's usually called the rich young ruler. Okay, so he's got the trifecta. He's got wealth, he's got power, and he's also got youth. He's also lawful. He's righteous by the lights of first century Judaism. He's kept the law his entire life. How do we know that he's telling the truth? How do we know that he's sincere because he is sincere because of that line that it says Jesus looks at him and loves him. He knows how sincere he is. He knows he's telling the truth when he says that he's been keeping the law all this time. So he is wealthy, young, powerful. He's lawful. He's righteous in the eyes of his religion. He is sincere. But he's also aware that something is missing. There's still something missing. This is why he's coming to Jesus. But notice how he opens his address to Jesus. He says, Good teacher. And then Jesus immediately slaps him down. Why do you call me good? Isn't that kind of an odd you know, reposed by Jesus? An odd rip- Why do you call me good? There's only one think about psychologically what's going on here. What is this young man doing? He's coming to Jesus as an apparent authority figure, looking for more rules to follow, right? What must I do to obtain eternal life? So he's going to this new authority that he has come to respect, and he wants more rules to be able to follow. And Jesus just tries to knock that down. That's his first mistake. If you're coming to me to ask me what's good, then you're just looking for another way to conform, and that's not where you're at anymore. The next step for you is to transform. The next step for you is to look not just at me, but Jesus is always pointing to the Father, the unseen God, right? The one who is shrouded in mystery. So Jesus sees right through him because when he's asking for more rules to follow, what is he really asking for? He's asking for a way to get what he wants where there's no risk, there's no cost, there's no change, and he's able to stay in control. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's what he's looking for. And there is no way to follow Jesus with no risk, no cost, no change. And by staying in control, it is the exact opposite of all of that. And Jesus sees right through him, points him back to unseen God and back to a radically different way of following, a way in which you are not in control. And this is what he tells him to do, sell everything. Now, did he literally need to sell everything? No, he didn't literally need to sell anything, but he needed to detach from everything And that's really difficult to do when your whole life has been built on relying on the assets that you have accrued, relying on your talents, relying on your looks, relying on whatever you rely on. To let that go, to sell that, to lose the source of your certainty, to lose the source of your control, to jump into the unknown, to now become vulnerable, to now become humble, The next line after this passage is Jesus turning to his friends when the young man walks away sad and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And they're all, well, then who can be saved? He says, well, for man it's impossible, but for God everything is possible. It's so difficult for us to do this. This is why normally we need to be broken down. Nobody gives up power voluntarily. Nobody gives up their wealth voluntarily. But when life comes and breaks us down, then we see little cracks in our armor, and we see through them to another there there, and that gives us the ability to finally go where we never would have gone on our own. Life provides that. We wish it didn't, but it does. So this selling of everything, it could be literal, but most importantly for us, it's figurative. This wealth equals the symbol of whatever it is that we're clinging to. Whatever it is, every one of us is still clinging to. We may not even know we're clinging to it. That's part of the process to become aware of where we really put our reliance, what we really lean on if it's not on God, to sever those attachments. Now, how do we do that? Well, here's Lent. How many of you grew up with Lent? How many grew up? Eh, it's looking like about half of us, okay, grew up in liturgical churches. Now, what do you remember about Lent from your childhood? (laughs) I remember ashes. You all have some on your head right now, yeah? Giving up candy bars. Oh, yeah, that was it. You know, as you kids, you know, us kids, it's like, well, when are you going to give up for Lent? And we'd all be comparing notes in the schoolyard. You know, I'm going to give up this, I'm going to give up that. But candy bars was a big one. Fasting, of course. Giving up whatever your favorite pleasure was. And why would we do that? You know, as a child, that was a really negative experience. We had to give up candy bars. You know, we couldn't eat this, we couldn't eat that. You know, pancakes were out the door and all sorts of things. But it was a negative experience, but it was also kind of a passive experience. We were taking things away, but we really weren't putting anything back. At least, we didn't understand it that way. We are just taking things away. And all the focus was on our sins. All the focus was on our failings. All the focus was on penance for those sins and for those failings. All the focus was on the guilt and the remorse that we should feel because we were so bad. And all the focus was on becoming worthy enough for this new life, worthy enough for Easter. And so the question then becomes, is this really what Lent is supposed to be about? And, or, is there another way to experience Lent, to practice Lent? to create a positive out of the negative as we move through this Easter season. So what do we know about Lent? What is Lent really? Where does the word come from, Lent? Right? Don't you guys want... I always want to know this stuff. I'm always looking at etymologies. Lent actually comes from the old English word lengthen, which simply means the spring season. So that's it. Lent always comes in the spring, and so they took the word for spring and ported it over, and this is the season that we're in. It's mentioned liturgically in in, uh, in surviving church documents as early as the mid 2nd century so this is really early stuff you know this is this is only 100 years after the crucifixion that we already see these communities having a time of preparation for easter which was the main festival of the year. Christmas really didn't take hold for another five or 600 years as a second major festival. Everything was focused around Easter. So it was really well established uh, in the fourth century. And it was moved to start on Wednesday, on Wednesday, always on Wednesday in the seventh century by Pope Gregory. And the reason he did that was to give an actual 40 day preparation for Easter. All right. Now, if you get on the calendar and you look at Ash Wednesday, and you look at Easter, it's not going to be 40 days. It's going to be 46 days. All right? But the church didn't count Sundays because you don't fast on Sundays. And so they only counted the days of fasting, and that was 40 days. All right? Just so you can, if you're going to go and check the calendar on me and just know, okay, I'm, it's it's still right. All the symbolism of ash and repentance and penitence, these were the themes of this 40 days of preparation. And so... The liturgy, again, like I said, it's, it's this wonderful thing that can bind a community with common values, a common vocabulary, common imagery, common practice. It really is something that brings communities together. We don't experience that here anymore in our country because we really don't have these kind of practices culturally and religiously that bring us together in this way. The Easter season, if you take a look at the liturgical year, it' usually um, looks like a pie chart. it is a pie chart, actually. And if you look at it, the whole Easter season from the begin, from Ash Wednesday, Shrive Tuesday, all the way to Pentecost, takes up an entire quarter of liturgical calendar. So this is the major festival of the year. And so we got this season that started actually on Tuesday with Shrive Tuesday. Also known as Pancake Day, <laughs> also known as Fat Tuesday, and if you put that into French, you got Mardi Gras. So now you know what's going down in Nollins, right? Or went down in Nollins. That was Fat Tuesday. Now, what does all that stuff mean? Well, shrive. The word shrive means to absolve, right? It means to hear a confession and assign a sign of penance. That was what shriving meant. And so, shrived or Shrove Tuesday was all about that. Vital confession, that purification of sin that you did before you started the fast of Ash Wednesday. This started as, as early as a thousand years ago. We had this practice going on. It was meant to be a day of self-examination. Taking a look at the wrongs that you needed to repent from. Areas of growth that you needed. And asking, of course, for God's help in all of this. And what they would do, they would ring a bell on Tuesday between 11 a.m. and 12 noon somewhere in there and it was a call to confession so everybody in the town would want to would need to go to the church and stand in line and go through confession and this was taking place as early as about 1600 and in 1600 it also became known as the pancake bell. Now why would it be the pancake bell? Well If you're going to start a 40-day fast the next day, the thing you needed to do was use up all your fatty foods, use up all the stuff that wasn't on the fasting menu. And so if you think about it, what are your fatty foods? I mean, you've got eggs, milk, and butter, and so on and so forth. What's in pancakes? All the same stuff, right? And so pancakes became a really easy way for households to get rid of all of that food that was going to go bad because they weren't going to be able to eat it for a month plus. Not only that, it connected with the tradition. The idea of the four pillars of, of uh, Christianity and the Christian faith were creation, sustenance, wholesomeness, and purity. And so The creation was symbolized by the eggs, makes sense, right? The sustenance by the flour, the wholesomeness by salt, and then purity by milk, all the ingredients of pancakes. And so the pancakes became a really traditional food in England and Western Europe during this time, to the point that they now have pancake races. Have you ever heard of pancake races? The idea is that this started the, the the legend is who knows if it's true started in 1445 in a city called only England Now, a woman was in her kitchen, and she was so engrossed in making her pancakes that the bell rung, and she realized that she was late for church, so she bolted out the door, still with her skillet, and still flipping the pancakes so that it wouldn't burn in the skillet, and ran across the town square to get to the church. So they thought, this was so fun and so funny. Let's make it a thing. And so they turned it into a race. And they have this race, and everybody has to wear an apron and a hat, and they've got a frying pan with their pancake in it, and the idea is, you've got to run, it's about four, usually around 400 yards through a course, and you've got to be flipping a pancake the entire time. And if you drop the pancake, you've got to start back at the beginning again, and sometimes you do them as relay races, so then you've got to flip the pancake into the next runner's <laughs> skillet, and then that person takes off. And just for fun, I wanted to read you some of the rules of the pancake race. According to the University of British Columbia, first rule, gentlemanly and gentlewomanly behavior will be strictly observed at all times. Administrators will especially be expected to be on their best behavior and to act as an example to all participants. Two, frying pans must not be used as weapons (laughs) or a means of making unseemly gestures. (laughs) Whatever the depth of provocation or the nature of the person at the root of the provocation. Three, any surplus eggs, flour, or butter remaining from the earlier making of pancakes must not be propelled in the direction of other participants or spectators. Four, the course is over 25 meters, and in that distance, pancakes must be tossed once to a minimum height of 30 centimeters. And if a a participant allows a pancake to fall, he or she must return to the starting line and begin again. Six, members from each team will run in relay and the pancake, frying pan and apron must be exchanged intact before the next member of the team can proceed. And lastly, the organizers reserve the right to send off violent or unruly participants. (laughs) Get a sense they take this pretty seriously? Maybe a bit too seriously. But it comes out of the tradition you see how beautiful it is it comes out of the tradition of the foods that you can't eat and what you make and all of this idea but also think of it this is the last day that you can gorge right the last day that you can eat the rich foods that you love before the lenten fast begins and they called it carnival day And I think we said a couple of weeks ago, that word carnival comes from two words, carne and vale, which means farewell to meet. So the carnival is about farewelling to meet. Goodbye to meet because we're not going to see you again for 40 days. The next day after Shrive Tuesday, of course, is Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent. And it's the first day that you actually fast. And so what the fast meant to them is you only ate one meal that day, and it was in the evening, um, you know, toward the, the end of the day. And you would have no meat, no fish, and no animal products whatsoever. So that leaves out a lot of stuff, right? There's no dairy, there's no animal products, there's no meat, there's no fish. Ashes were a huge part, of course, of of Ash Wednesday, this ancient symbol of desolation, of mourning. Sackcloth and ashes is something that has come down to us in our vocabulary. They would pour ashes on their head, and they would wear this rough, um, coarse fabric that would itch and make them uncomfortable. Um, Ashes that were used on Ash Wednesday came from burning the palm fronds from the previous year 's Palm Sunday, and those are the ashes that were used and then they were blessed, and they initially, as we said, they were poured on your head, but eventually it became just a cross on the forehead, and what the priest would say to the person who 's receiving the ashes was remember. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return, which is Genesis 3.19. And then after Vatican II, in the 60s, repent and believe in the gospel from Mark 1.15 was also an alternative thing um, that could be said to someone who is receiving their ashes. But it's a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol of changing directions, going in another direction, a, a purging, a cleansing, and a rededication to prepare for this new life of Easter. Now, Lent was meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And we've talked about this before. The 40 in, in Hebrew uh, symbolism is so important. All their numbers have num- have meanings. And so you can combine these meanings. You can factor these meanings. And so when you take the number five, which is the name for man or the name for an initiation, and you multiply it by eight, which is the number for rebirth, you get a time of trial and testing, a human time of trial and testing that leads into a rebirth. And so this is what 40 means. And just to put a finer point on it, 40 in the Bible appears about 159 times across both the Old and New Testaments. Look at some of the places in which 40 is used and how it's used as this time of trial and testing into a rebirth. Moses on Mount Sinai fasting for 40 days when he received the law. Moses in prayer for Israel. Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40. The first 40 when he's a prince of Egypt, the second one when he's a shepherd in Midian in the back of beyond, and then 40 more leading Israel through the wilderness. Each one of those, a time of trial and testing into a rebirth into the next part of his life. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David took that rock, right? There were 40 days of spies in the land of Canaan that Joshua sent out. The Israelites wandered in the the desert for 40 years. The embalming of Jacob occupied 40. The three kings reigned for 40 years each, Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings of Israel. Elijah's meal kept him strong, and he fasted before the cave uh, cave on Mount Horeb for 40 days. Noah's flood lasted 40 days. Jonah's warning concerning the destruction of Nineveh, Forty days. Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to bear the iniquity of Judea's sins. And Jesus appeared for 40 days after the resurrection. And Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. He was also 40 hours in the tomb between the crucifixion and the resurrection. All these 40s, all saying the same thing symbolically. This is a time of trial and testing. This is a time of... of breaking down, going into the the pit, going into the grave, going into some sort of wilderness before you come up on the other side. And Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days, right? This kenosis, this emptying, a moving into silence, into solitude, into stillness and simplicity, those four S's we talk about in contemplative practice. Take a look at how it's put in Mark first one, verse nine, and then we'll look at Matthew the parallel and just see how it's presented. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is before he's even started his public ministry. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is right after those 40 days. Do you see why Vatican II grabbed that? Line as part of what you would hear as you were receiving your ashes. This is exactly what Jesus said. The first thing he says out of the box after his fortiness in the desert. At Matthew 4, starting at verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, You shall now put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so we are seeing the way that they're laying out this fortiness and these temptations. Again, the number three being the number of perfection. It is a perfect number. These temptations are meant to represent all of the trials and all of the human testing that we go through in our lives, compressed into this fortiness, compressed into this time. Jesus spent this time, I'm sure it was more than 40 days going through and purging all of the human obsessions and compulsions that we all have, that Jesus had too, because he was human like the rest of us. Scripture tells us that. And on the other side of that, why the wilderness? Why the suffering? Is it for its own sake? Is it because we're being punished for the things? Is that what's going on here? Absolutely not. It's about silence. It's about solitude. It's about fasting and suffering to exhaustion, not for its own sake, but as a means to another end. That's the key. It's a means to another end. Now, over the years, the church and the church's people have lost the meaning behind the symbol and practice of Lent, behind the symbol and practice of fasting and prayer, all of these things that are joined together in this time of trial and testing, in this fortiness, the suffering and deprivation of these practices became an end in themselves. Just following rules now, just following the rules of the church, just following the pressure of the culture around you, right? Following rules and emulating Jesus and his suffering, but without any understanding why. Either Jesus suffered or now we are suffering in imitation of him. Yeah, we're giving up pleasures, we're giving up candy bars, right? But mostly we're fasting as punishment. Or maybe we're also fasting as this superstitious quid pro quo, you know, as if God will reimburse us, uh, God will reward us for our Lenten suffering, for all of the deprivation that we go through through Lent with some sort of blessings on the other side. What's really happening here in the wilderness is that Jesus is moving into a kind of sensory deprivation. You know, those tanks that you would go into, well, it's a kind of sensory deprivation. He's letting go of all his familiar life. He's quieting himself. He's going into a place where it doesn't have all of that distraction. He's removing everything he knew as a human being and everything that he relied on in his life, in his culture, in his family, in his trade in order to be able to get to the bottom, to be able to see what was left when all of that was removed and see the truth that was there when all of the filters and all of those distractions were removed as well. He needed to do that. We need to do that. So often we look at Jesus as as God so much we forget that he was also human and needed to go through this process. This is the process that teaches us how we need to also emulate Jesus, but with understanding of what we're actually doing or we'll get no benefit from just thinking that we're being punished or thinking that somehow God is going to reimburse us for the suffering that we go through right now. Henry Nouwen is brilliant at this when he says that there are three symbolic temptations here. There might have been more, but these are the three symbolic ones. He says that it is the temptation to be relevant, to be powerful, and to be spectacular that Jesus is really putting down in his fortiness in this time in the wilderness. And this lines up perfectly with Thomas Keating when he talks about our biological needs, our biological imperatives, because he says there are three of those as well. It's our need for security and survival. As small children, as small humans, we have a need for security and survival. We have a need for power and control. And we have a need for affection and esteem those are the biological needs that drive us. They always drive us because we're here breathing, we're living, we're going to have those needs. And they're so deeply embedded in our DNA that they're unconscious. We don't even realize how they're driving us and driving our choices, our thought patterns and our behavior. And this is part of this process, this fortiness is understanding those needs and how they do drive us so that we can overcome them and the bad effects or the dysfunctional effects that they would have on relationships, on others, if they aren't moderated by love, if they aren't moderated by the experience of perfect love. That's what this process is all about because only perfect love can cast out fear and all of these biological needs are driven by fear. The fear of death, these fragile Physical creatures fear all of this. So, to be able to move past that changes everything about the way that we are experiencing this fortiness. So, when it comes to our lives, what is real? What is true to us? Is it our jobs, our careers? Is it some cause that we're fighting for? Is it politics, religion, family, our deeply held beliefs? Now, as human beings, we're swimming in all of that. But what is real? What is essential? What is life giving and not just distracting? Figuring all this out is part of the awareness of this fortiness. Lent is recognizing this 40 time of stripping away everything that distracts us and keeps us away from the truth. Originally, Lent was, this 40-ness, was a preparation for baptism, not for Easter. Every time a person came new to the faith, they had to go through this 40 days of preparation, and it was a stripping down. It was the same process, but for baptism, this preparation for the new life that baptism was going to be giving, for a resurrection, for a rebirth. Being born again, as Jesus understands it, you know, having a completely new awareness, seeing things in a completely different way, is what waits on the other side of this fortiness, this kenosis, this emptying that Jesus also went through. It's not for us to just look at Jesus going through this. It is for us, and Jesus is telling us all the time, to go through it ourselves. That's what following Jesus' way is all about. It's following the same shape of the journey. I wanted to read just a a little article by a man who was uh, just turning 78, and he uh, calls this withering into the truth. I love that title, withering into the truth. It is that shedding of all that stuff that you think you are when you're younger, right? And he starts with with quoting a poem by Yeats, though leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth." William Butler Yeats. In a few days, I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh, roll their eyes, and change the subject. Here's a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folk, folks think you're getting dotty when, in fact, you're just fending off unwanted conversation. Question, what do you give a man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. He says, I don't need gifts of a material nature, but I do need to remember a few things that I've learned during my nearly eight decades on Earth. He says, the Yeats poem at the head of this column Name something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and wither into the truth. If I resist the temptation to Botox my withering, my youthful lies weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself, the world, and the relation of the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects came from my ego, a notorious liar, Coming to terms with the sole truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, has required my ego to shrivel up. Nothing shrivels a person better than age. (laughs) That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from having my ego so broken down and composted by life, I love that, composted by life, that eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it, I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me? I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. (laughs) I love that. See, this is what Lent is all about. Becoming a contemplative by intention actually putting intentional energy and awareness into the process of withering into the truth. Because that's the only way we get to the truth. If we don't get this ego out of the way, if we don't get everything that we think we know, if we don't sell everything we think we have, how in the world are we going to see something that is coming from such a radically different place that we could never imagine it in a thousand lifetimes on our own? How do we do that? How are we going to hear Jesus coming to us from that place, so alien, so radically different, and see anything but a lunatic if we haven't withered into the place where we can actually see the truth of where he's coming from? This is what it's all about. This is what he's talking about. His age stripped him down of all he thought he was as a human. Everything that he relied on as a young man as a writer, right, in his career, withered away his certainty of understanding of life. And after all of that withering, what was left was the truth, withering into truth. This is what Lent is giving us. It's giving us an opportunity to begin becoming contemplative by intention, to generate this withering process, what it's all about an intentional time of selling everything in order to really follow Jesus' way. Not just the rules, but following Jesus' way, which means we need to understand why the rules are there. We need to understand why the symbols are what they are so that we can be moving into the truth of that and not just following on the surface. We need to stop seeing Lent as just passive, And especially as negative, as just a taking away of things, a punishing. Taking away as punishment or penance for sin, that's just a byproduct that has nothing to do with the real intention of why we're doing this. To turn this around and look at it as positive, as affirmative action, a moving out into a greater silence, into a greater simplicity. An intentional, concentrated training period is what Lent can become for us if we let it. Awareness of God's presence. I suppose we could think of it as a liturgical excuse to get her done. All this work that we need to do anyway, this is a time where we can really focus on it symbolically for 40 days. Can we do that? Can we, can we spend the time to move in? Well, how do we do it? I mean, you're probably still saying, yeah, but this all sounds great. Again, how do I do it? Well, fasting can help. Fasting is a physical reminder of an intention to be present. What happens when you fast? Well, you get hungry when you fast, right? And that hunger is grounding you in your physical nature, grounding you in the moment, reminding you, yes, you are a physical creature. You're not above the rules of nature. Yeah, we can always just go to the fridge and pull something out and we can kind of imagine that uh, hunger isn't gonna get us. But fasting reminds us we are these vulnerable, dependent creatures living at God's pleasure every single moment, every breath that we take. Fasting can bring us back to that realization. Break into our automatic rituals, stop those. Because we're not just going to eat at the next time. We're not just going to the. We're stopping and breaking those through. That makes us more aware and it grounds us in this physical dependence, all of that. Also, we can dedicate ourselves to a daily commitment to simple mindfulness, to make sure that our thoughts are where our actions are, that our head is where our feet are, that the only thought in our head is on the task that we are doing at the moment, the conversation that we're having. We can establish some morning quiet time for ourselves, 20 minutes, 30 minutes if you've got it. And that can be a a whole range of things from some devotional reading to just watching the shadows move across the room, sipping your coffee and really tasting it, or centering prayer, meditation. It can be a whole variety of things, but the whole point is to really allow yourself not to think, not to think about your thoughts. Just let them go by and just be. Stepping outside of that egoic presence is everything because it starts to give us a sense that there is more to us than just that voice in our heads. There is more to us than that voice that is always telling us that we are not, we're suffering by comparison here. Maybe we're not good at all. That just goes away and we sink into just a sense of okayness, of worthiness when we can do that. If you really want to follow Jesus... We can use this liturgical excuse of Lent to go into an interior wilderness for 40 days. We don't have to leave our job and leave our family and and change our address. That's not what this is all about. But we do need to leave our normal state of mind. Retreat in place. We don't need to go to a retreat. We need to retreat into the same mindset that we would go to a retreat for. Rilke, the poet, said, the only journey is the one within. That's the journey that we need to take. Jesus said, the kingdom is within. It's the same thing. Are we going to be able to dedicate some time to exploring that interior wilderness to allow ourselves to break down I know this is just a, an overview and it may not make a lot of sense. I did something I've never done before. If you take a look at your inserts, there's an actual QR code on that thing, all right? you know what QR stands for? I always wondered. It's just quick response. You know, they put all these letters and they sound really official and everything. It's just quick response code. That's all the QR code means. Anyway, there's a QR code there. If you scan that with your phone, it's going to take you right to our page for our, uh, our Contemplative ebook 1. Um, which is a breakdown of what contemplative uh, uh, contemplation is all about, what contemplative practice is, a little bit more about it, then as a link to the second ebook that gets into the actual practices if you 're thinking maybe you want to try to do some things for Lent, this would be a way that you can read these two ebooks and get more of an idea of what this is about, why it 's important, how it works, and what are some specific practices that you can do. There's also a link to five little short videos, talking head videos that I did, that kind of talk about the the what, the why, and the how of, of contemplative practice. And then finally, if you just want to cut to the chase, there's just a link to just guidelines for just mindfulness practices. Just six different practices that you can do to lock yourself in during the day. If you can't put the quiet time together, there's something at every level however deep you want to go. And of course, come see me. If this isn't making sense or you want to talk it through and how can you establish something for yourself this Lent or just in general, we can talk it through. We'll go get coffee and we'll talk about it. But here's your opportunity. If we let it, Lent can help quiet us down. If we will use this liturgical excuse for a new presence for a new way of looking at presence. Lent can give us this opportunity if we will take it. And so the question is simply, will you let Lent do its job? Will you let it wither you into a new kind of truth that you understand in a different way, in a good way, and realize that the ashes are the necessary place we need to go before we can rise up on the other side on Easter. Let's pray. Father, once again, it's counterintuitive. Once again, it's so hard for us to see the need to wither into ashes before we can come up on the other side. But so many of the stories and the legends and the parables that have been taught to us in our tradition and in every tradition on earth Attest to the same thing. We need to die before we can really live. We need to wither into ashes. Help us to get that through to a level that we're willing to take the first steps. That's it. And however glancing a blow it may be this Lent for each one of us, that we do something that takes us a few steps down, withers us a bit, strips us away a bit that we can see more of the truth of your perfect love that will finally do that job of casting out the rest of our fear so that we can boldly go where you go and we can find the freedom of the truth of your love father thank you for all the tools and everything that you give us thank you for the gift of each other in this community a safe place for us to experiment and make mistakes and still be accepted a mirror of who you are and how you love us And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.